If you'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 tonight as we continue our study of the book of Revelation, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 12 this evening. And this is what those verses say in Revelation 12, beginning at verse 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures, and we thank you for people who love them. We thank you for this crowd tonight. We pray you would bless our time together, bless those who've taken time out of their lives to be here, and we will thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. The night that Jesus was arrested when he was betrayed by Judas up in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter drew a sword and he swung it and he missed the guy's head, cut off his ear. He was a servant of the high priest, and Jesus healed the ear. And then he said to Peter, don't you know that I could appeal to my father and have 12 legions of angels here right now? Now, what that tells us is there's things that are going on in that unseen world we know very little about. There's an angelic conflict that's taking place between God's angels and Satan's angels, and we don't see it. We don't see this tonight. We don't know how many angels are in this sanctuary or how many angels are connected to this church. We don't have the privilege of having eyes to be able to see that, but I guarantee you they are there. And even though we live in a time when there's an interest in Satan and demons, what people really need to know and what people need to understand is Satan and his demons have always been and will always be losers. The winner will always be God. Now, a brief history of how God has dominated Satan shows this. There are two texts of Scripture that really describe the total control God has over Satan. Those texts are Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. We learn from Isaiah 14 that Satan was very, very jealous, and Satan was envious of God, and he said, I will be like the Most High God. This is what I will be. I will be this. We learn from Ezekiel 28 that he appeared in the Garden of God, and that he was a high, exalted, created angel, but because of his arrogance and pride, he obviously was expelled from heaven. There are four times in Scripture when Satan has been cast down or cast out or will be cast down and cast out. First of all, he was cast out of heaven from the throne of God and from being in charge of all the angels who guarded the throne of God. We learn that in Ezekiel 28. We believe that when God said he would make man in his image, That prompted Satan to proudly rebel against God and want to be like God. 
And that's when that Isaiah 14 text comes into play. I will be like the Most High God. In fact, he actually, when he came to this earth at that point and left the splendor of heaven, he had demons cohabit with humans trying to produce an offspring that would be in his image. And that's what caused God to remove him from heaven, that pride. I will be like the Most High God. Jesus referred to that moment when he said, I saw that moment. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And it must have been like a lightning show. I mean, he saw Satan and his angels actually falling from the sphere of heaven. I mean, those angels had all been a team when God created originally the heavens and the earth. They had been a team. We learn from Job that they all rejoiced at the creation of God. But then you have this episode, and Satan and a third of the angels, they fall with him. Jesus said, I'm completely aware of that. I saw it. I was there. I saw it. And when he was here on earth, he was aware of what Satan was doing, even in getting permission from God the Father to do something. He said to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you. I mean, he was obviously aware of what he was doing. So what Satan ultimately did in heaven is the glorious angel that was the most majestic angel created by God, because of his arrogance and pride, he goes from being the most glorious angel in heaven to being the most detestable angel that's ever been in existence. Then second, Satan was cast down here in Revelation. We're going to see that tonight from any present position that God had permitted him to have. We know from studying scripture that there are moments when apparently Satan does have permitted access to God at times when he's able to appear in heaven and he's able to obviously in the case of Job, he appeared there and he challenged God to let him out of a shot at Job And at this point in the Great Tribulation, Satan's no longer permitted to have any access to heaven at all. He's cut off. We're going to see it tonight. The third time that Satan is going to be cast down is he's going to be cast into an abyss. We'll see it later in Revelation at the second coming of Jesus Christ. He'll be in that abyss for 1,000 years. The text is very clear in Revelation 20 on that point. He'll be cast into that abyss for a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ when Christ has his millennial reign as the righteous king of Israel and over the world for that matter. And then finally, Satan will be cast into everlasting fire after he's released for a short time from that abyss, and that'll be his end. Now, in this text that we're going to look at tonight, we're in the middle of the Great Tribulation. We're about halfway through. And things are starting to turn toward Israel. Satan has been cast out of heaven. He no longer is permitted to have any access to heaven. He appeared in the sky as that red dragon, and yet he's going to lose that war. He's going to lose that war with Michael and his angels. We'll see it tonight. And when that happens, when he is kicked out of heaven and no longer has any access to heaven, he's going to go on a vendetta against Israel. This is what Daniel predicted would happen. Daniel said that there was going to be a seven-year span of time. In the first three and a half years of that seven years for Israel would be relatively tranquil. There would be relative peace in the land of Israel and things would be going good. The Antichrist will surface as a friend of Israel. The Antichrist, we're going to meet him in the next couple of weeks, would surface and allow them to rebuild the temple and get their worship services going. So Israel will feel good about themselves until this happens. Daniel said in the middle of that seven-year period, when that abomination of desolation occurs, when the Antichrist goes into the temple, he demands to be worshipped as God. He says to Israel, you have Satan present there. You need to get out of there as fast as you can. Flee. Flee as quick as you can. 
Now, this is where this all begins here, right here. And we'd like to analyze this and systematize it by asking and answering eight questions from the text. When does this event take place? Well, this event takes place in close proximity to those two signs we looked at last Sunday night. One of the signs pertains to Israel. The other sign pertains to Satan. We suspect, as we pointed out last time, those signs are going to be very visible to people on earth. I mean, they're going to look in the sky. They're going to see that great sign of that woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars, which is a reference to Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. People are going to look in that sky. They're going to see that. Then they're going to look in that sky, and they're going to also see that dragon that's there, that dragon that we pointed out last week. And we can assume that at the three-and-a-half-year point, that's when this happens happens where people look in the sky and they see these two major signs that are taking place in heaven. And I think they're literally going to see them. People on earth are going to look in the sky and see that. Now, the second question is, why is this war in heaven taking place? Well, there are three reasons. Number one, Satan is nearing the point when he's just about finished. And he's not going to go quietly. He's never been one to go quietly. He's arrogantly defiant in his attitude toward God and in his attitude toward the Word of God and for the program of God. Secondly, Christ is nearing the point when he's going to be victorious, and Satan knows that. And God is using Satan to finish his great tribulation judgments because when all is said and done in the long run, Satan is nothing more than a puppet in the hands of God. He's a created being. God is the one who created him, and God is the one who can control him. He permits him to do certain things way beyond our ability to grasp. But the fact of the matter is, he's in sovereign control of him, and for those three reasons, there's going to be this war that's going to take place. Now, the third question is, who are the combatants in this heavenly war of Revelation chapter 12? Well, we notice that the two combatants are named there in verse 7. Michael and his angels are waging war with the dragon and his angels. So, what we have here are the combatants who are clearly identified in this battle, The battle that's going to take place is a war between Michael and his angels and Satan and his angels. Now, don't kid yourself. There are angels, innumerable number of angels that exist. I'm convinced in carefully studying the scriptures, you have a guardian angel connected to you. I believe we can support that from the word of God. This isn't just imaginative things that we're dreaming up here. I mean, this is really coming from the word of God. And we know there's an angel assigned to the church We know there are multiple angels that are connected to the program of God. And obviously, not only does God have his angels, Satan has his. And so what's going to happen at this point is you have two combatants, Michael and his angels, and Satan and his angels. Now the fourth question is, who's Michael? Why is he singled out? This is important. There are six facts that I want you to see about Michael. Number one, he's an archangel. Now, we learned that from Jude 9. So just back up in your Bible a few pages to Jude and verse 9. Because in Jude verse 9, here's what we read. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So we learned that Michael is an archangel. We learned it from that. The adjectival prefix arch, which means archangel, means this is a high-ranking angel among the angels. Not every angel holds the same position. This is a very high-ranked angel in the program of God. He's the only angel, by the way, specifically identified this way. I don't think he's the only archangel, 
because we know when the church age ends, there's going to be a trumpet will be sound and the archangel will sound out. And we know that the archangel will announce the rapture of the church, but the archangel isn't named. I assume there are other archangels, but Michael is in fact, we know this from inspired scripture, an archangel. The second fact about him is his name means who's like God. That's what Michael means, who is like God. Thirdly, Michael is a high-ranked angel who can reveal prophecy and overrule and defeat world powers as it relates to Israel. Now, I need you to go back to the book of Daniel, if you would, chapter 10. I want to show you just a couple of verses from the book of Daniel. And we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 10, and then I'm going to show you a verse from Daniel chapter 12. But in Daniel chapter 10, we get some information here about Michael and part of his responsibilities here in Daniel 10. And I want to draw your attention to verse 13 of Daniel 10. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Then drop down to verse 21. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Now, Michael is a high-ranking archangel, and you have a lot of mysterious stuff going on with nations. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you what's going on in this nation. And the nations named here are Persia and Greece. So here's this unseen world, these angelic powers and forces that are working nations. I know this much from studying the book of Daniel. According to the book of Daniel, political powers are described as being beasts. Well, what makes them beasts? Well, what makes them beasts is what's going on in their relationship with God, which is anti-God for the most part. So you have these angels that are involved in this battle, this warfare that's going on. I mean, I'm sure there's a battle for this country. We pray. We pray that God will give victory to this country. Well, how's that going to happen? I mean, if you have a bunch of angels that are satanic angels, and they are trying to do everything they can that's contrary to God and contrary to the Word of God, how in the world can this ever be overtaken where this thing could turn around? Well, God could use his angelic forces to accomplish his word and his will, and Michael is a key player of the political powers that are taking place, especially in regard to Israel. Which brings us to the next text I want you to look at. Look at chapter 12 of Daniel and verse 1. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, Now at the time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. So what we learn here about Michael is he is a security guard. And he's a security guard for the nation Israel. And specifically, if we track that through the book of Daniel... He's been a security guard for the nation Israel when military powers would, if they could, completely destroy Israel. So one reason why Israel is still in existence tonight and still has that land that she has tonight, which is just a fraction of the totality of land she's supposed to have, is because you have this security guard, Michael, and his assignment is he's a security guard for the nation Israel, for the people of God. So he obviously is going to have a key position to play when we reach this point in the tribulation when the program of God is now swinging back to Israel. Michael is going to be front and center stage in this. 
Which brings us to the fifth fact about him. Michael is the specific archangel who prevented Satan from taking Moses' body. Now, this is the interesting thing about Michael, because I want to bring out the sixth fact, and then we'll talk about it. Michael apparently is slightly outranked by Satan. In that Jude text that we read tonight, Michael said, I'm not going to rebuke Satan. I'll let God do that. And yet, here's the interesting thing. In every conflict where Michael has squared off against Satan, Satan loses, Michael wins. So in every conflict that we can track that goes down through the scriptures, for example, in that conflict where Daniel was praying, and Satan did not want that prayer answered. He did not want Daniel to understand the prophetic program of God and what God was going to do. And so Satan was using, obviously, his angelic forces to try to prevent an answer to that prayer that Daniel was praying. So Michael comes to the rescue and sees to it that Daniel gets the information. So even though Satan, in a sense, outranks Michael as being a created angel, apparently higher than Michael, and that's what Michael says in Jude verse 9 when he says, I'm not going to rebuke you, I'll let God rebuke you. The fact of the matter is, anytime Michael has come in conflict with Satan, Michael wins. Which brings us to the fifth question, who's Satan? Now in verses 7 to 9, we get five descriptive names and titles of Satan that reveal basically his character. That's what these names do. They reveal the character of Satan. The first title that he's given there is he's given the title of a dragon. Michael and his angels were waging war with a dragon. Well, we've already seen that title given to him in verse 3 of the 12th chapter. He's called the great red dragon there. And that language simply describes the fact he's an untamable, powerful, vicious monster and killer. And literally, that's what he does. He kills. He's a monster that's unstoppable. He cannot be tamed. That's why this noun is used that describes him. He is a person who is an angelic person who's against God. He's against the people of God. He's against the word of God, and he sure hates Israel. So he's a dragon. Secondly, he's described by the noun serpent. Notice verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent, the serpent, and notice the serpent of old. He's identified as the serpent of old, and he's called that again in chapter 20. If you go over there to chapter 20, verse 2, for just a minute, I want to just again have you see that about him, because that title seems to be a significant title that God gives to him. In chapter 20, verse 2, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's where he goes into that abyss for a thousand years. He's given this title, serpent of old, which would perhaps suggest that he is the oldest of the angels. In other words, he was probably the first and greatest angel ever created. I mean, he was spectacular. We learn that from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28, he was a spectacular angel when God originally made him, created him. He filled up the sum of the genius and beauty of God. That's what the text says there in Ezekiel 28. And Satan was apparently the angel of old or the old serpent because he's probably the oldest angel that was first created by God, but he is a serpent. That's the title given to him, which means he's a slithering snake. He indwelt the serpent when obviously he was in Eden, and ever since that attack, 
that he made against Eve and Adam in Eden. He's been slithering around in a secretive way, trying to poison and destroy everything and everyone. The way he actually tricked Eve was by twisting the word of God. That's what he's a master at doing. That's what Corinthians teaches us, by the way, that Satan has his ministers, what they're good at is just twisting the scriptures. Bits and pieces of truth, but they don't take the whole counsel of God. They don't analyze things systematically. They just pick bits and pieces of things, and that's what Satan did to trip up Eve. And he secretly slithers around. He tries to destroy and devour any that he can. He's not a friend of people. He's not a friend of anyone. In fact, he's a deadly, venomous serpent. He's out to kill and destroy, and that's why that title's given to him, the serpent. The third title that's given to him there in verse 9 is the devil. Now, the word devil literally refers to the fact he's a false, slanderous accuser and liar. Jesus said he's the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. He's a father of lies. He does a lot of his diabolical work through allegations, false allegations. He knows how to just say things that really aren't true. In Eden, he lied. He told Eve, you aren't going to die if you eat that fruit. No, God didn't say that. He tripped up Eve by saying, did God say this? I mean, that's how he started. He questioned her. And she said, well, God said in the day we touch it and eat of it, we'll die. Well, God never said you couldn't touch it. He said you couldn't eat it. But the moment Satan heard her say, you can't touch it, he knows she doesn't know what the word of God actually is. So then he just came right back and said, no, no, God knows you'll be like him. And in the day you eat of it, you're not going to die. So then he just twisted it. He's a liar. And that's what that term devil means. He's a false accuser and a slanderer and a liar. Then he's given a fourth title, Satan. That's there in verse 9. He's given the noun Satan. That title means he's an adversary of God. That's his mode of operandi, as it may be. He's an evil opponent of God. He is against God in everything that God stands for. He's against the word of God. He's against the work of God. He's against the program of God. He's against Christians in this dispensation of the age of grace. And he certainly is going to be against Israel at this point in the tribulation. And that's why we're being introduced to him here, because he's about to go on a vicious rampage against Israel, and he opposes everything that God is and everything that God is going to do. And then he is given the title, The Deceiver. In verse 9, Satan, who deceives the whole world. Now understand that about him. He is not a truth setter. He is not a straight shooter. He is a deceptive liar. His goal is to deceive the whole world, to turn the whole world away from the truth of God, away from the word of God, away from the will of God. He has deceived many angels. He got a third of the angelic number, whatever it is. I don't know what the number is, but he got a third of them to follow him. But now, since those third are with him, his goal is to deceive people all over the world. His goal is to lead them away from truth. His goal is to lead them away from God and his word and will. He's deceptively trying to lead people away from the true, pure, good ways of God. He's trying to deceive the nations in regard to Israel. He's trying to deceive the nations in regard to the Bible and methods of salvation and concepts of God. He's trying to deceive people into having them believe that their works can save them. 
When in fact, God's word says your works are as filthy rags in my sight. Can only be saved by faith in my son. But that's what Satan is. He's out to deceive. Paul called Satan the God of this world. He called him the prince and the power of the air. Now, he does not have any power over the people of God. Those that are in Christ, he has no power over unless God permits him to attack them. Like he got permission to attack Job, but apparently he got permission to attack Peter as well because Jesus said he wants to sift you and you're going to be sifted by Satan. So obviously he has to get permission, but we need to understand this. We're no match for Satan. There are some people that they go around like they're going to cast out demon and go one-on-one against Satan. We're no match for him. And we're not ever challenged in the Bible to fear Satan. We're challenged fear God. That's our responsibility. But no kid yourself, he is a deceiver. Now the sixth question is who starts the war between Michael and Satan? You'll notice verse 7. We learn who starts the war. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Now the grammar is clear on this point. The instigator of this war is Michael. Michael is the one who picks the fight. He's the one who starts the fight. He and his angels go up against Satan and his angels. And we learn that when Michael and his angels start the war, Satan and his forces are not going to surrender. They fought back. We have said multiple times in this course of studying the book of Revelation that when Jesus Christ comes back here to take over the world, he'll have to take it over by force because people aren't just going to willingly surrender to him. If he came back tonight and went into Washington, D.C. and said, I'm here to take over, do you honestly think those people would bow down before him? I mean, if he came right out of the sky and landed in Washington, do you think those people would say, well, this is great. We're glad you're here. Happy to have you take over. They would fight him every step of the way. That's why Daniel describes political powers as beasts. And there's a war that goes on between God and the beasts. And this war is between Michael and Satan. Now the seventh question is, where is this war fought? Well, we get the answer to that from verse 7. There was war in heaven. Now literally in Greek, the text reads, in the heaven. In the heaven. There are three heavens, as we have brought out many, many times in this church. First of all, there's the atmospheric heaven, spoken of by Jeremiah. That's where the... Birds fly and the clouds are. That's the oxygen that we breathe in the atmospheric heaven. Then there is the stellar heaven, spoken of by Isaiah, where the sun, the moon, the galaxies, the stars, the planets, they're there in the stellar heaven. Then you have this third heaven, which is the throne of God heaven. That is referred to in Revelation 4. John was caught up to the third heaven. Paul was caught up to the third heaven when he was caught up to that heaven. And this is apparently where this is going to take place. Apparently, Satan at the present time is permitted now and then to enter into the presence of God. I can't explain all he does. We do get some glimpses of what he does. We'll get one just a minute here in this text. But the fact of the matter is he apparently at the present time is permitted on occasion to enter into the sphere of the presence of God, God and his angels, and Michael and his angels, and it's somewhere in that third heaven where this thing takes place. Which brings us to the eighth question, what's the outcome of the war? Well, carefully notice, 
Five times in the text, John stresses what the outcome of this war is. In verse 9, he says, The great dragon was thrown down. The one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. If you go to verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have become for the accuser of our brethren of thrown down. And then in verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down, obviously by virtue of the repetition of the point, it's very critical in the tribulation that this takes place and Satan is thrown down, literally it means he's cast down, something he didn't even want. He literally is thrown down, and it's a passive verb, which means the action's performed on him. It's not a positive action. He literally is thrown out of heaven. The aorist tense of the verb indicates this is a one-point-time deal. It's a moment of time in the tribulation, and the passive verb means Satan and his forces are the recipients of this action. So at this point in the tribulation period, they are literally thrown down out of heaven, cast down. Now when that happens, there will be four results. Number one, they're no longer permitted to go anywhere near heaven. Notice what verse 8 says, And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. There's just somewhat of a mystery here. But apparently those angels are permitted to go to certain locations in heaven, but at this point they're no longer permitted to do that. It certainly would mean they no longer have any access to God. And as we'll see in just a few minutes, they no longer can make any accusations against the people of God. You know, I don't know if you've ever had a situation where you've ever been in a job or in a church and then there's a real jerk there. And then the jerk leaves, and you go, good. I don't know if you've ever been through that. That's what's happening here. I mean, what you have happening here is you have Satan and his forces, and I'm sure that Michael and his, they're just fed up with the fact that this one is here. And at this point in the tribulation, and as you'll see, they are going to say good in quite a praise service that's going to take place here. Good riddance. And that's what happens here. Now, the second result is Satan and his forces will be confined to this earth. You'll notice verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, now you have a major demotion for Satan and his demons. They no longer have any access whatsoever to the throne of God in heaven, and so now they are confined to this earth. And remember, angels are not omnipresent. Angels can be one place at one time. So now you have Satan, and he's confined to this earth by virtue of the fact that he loses this battle, and you have the demons that are with him, and they are confined to this earth as well at this point in the Great Tribulation. This is the moment when Israel needs to flee Jerusalem and don't bother to get a coat, don't do anything, get out of there as fast as you can, because when he's confined to this earth, he's going to target a group of people and go after them worldwide in an attempt to exterminate him. Now, the third result is Satan's loss to Michael is going to cause great praise in heaven. Verses 10 to 12 are just interesting things. Now, I heard a loud voice in heaven. See, these people are going, woohoo, we're glad. I mean, he's no longer here. Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ 
have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. See, I think we get a glimpse here as to what Satan does. He has these demons that probably are just quick to report to him failures of God's people. And the problem is, since none of us are perfect, we probably have given them ammunition on occasion to be able to go up there and fire the accusations against us. And Satan's right there, boy. I'm sure he's right there. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But we see here there are six different themes that are taking place at this praise in heaven. God is being praised for his salvation. Verse 10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. As we mentioned, this is kind of, again, we're at that point where you have this praise service taking place before the actual event occurs. As we used the illustration previously, it's a good illustration. The night that a political party wins an election, there's a big celebration. And yet, they don't really officially take office till later. And that's what you actually have happening here. You have this tremendous celebration because they realize, well, Satan's kicked out of heaven now, and now we're just not too far away from the Lord Jesus Christ taking over the world, and that becomes obvious here in just a minute. And there's this great celebration and worship that's taking place in heaven because of it, because his salvation is about to take over the world. Secondly, God will be praised because of his power. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. They're praising God for his power, not Satan's power, God's power. Because all people in heaven are not quibbling about the sovereign power of God. All people in heaven realize the sovereign power of God has the capability of doing everything, including destroying and eliminating evil demonic powers. The third theme is God is praised for his kingdom. They realize he's about to establish his kingdom. That's what he mentions there, that noun kingdom. They realize You know that prayer that people have been praying for years, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Well, it's about to be answered. Jesus Christ is about to come here and establish his kingdom on earth. And that clearly refutes, by the way, the idea that his kingdom's already been here on earth. It isn't. There is a sense in which the program of God has been on earth. It's been on earth ever since creation. And it certainly is on earth during the church age. But the fact of the matter is, he has not established his kingdom on earth, and he won't do it until here. Which brings us to the fourth theme. He will be praised for his authority of his Christ. Now, they mention that, and the authority of his Christ. When you think of the noun Christ, think of Israel's Messiah. God's anointed one, Israel's Messiah. Now, why are they praising God because of Israel's Messiah or the Christ? Why are they praising God? Because this whole program of God right now is turning to Israel. And people in heaven realize the eschatology of this. They understand that Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's going to set up a kingdom And he's going to reign over Israel as her righteous king. And all of the dreams that Israel has thought about and wanted will finally come true. The fifth theme is God will be praised because no more accusations. Now look at verse 10. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcome him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. They did not love their life even when they faced death. The truth of the matter is 
Many are going to die at this point, especially Israel. We know from Zechariah that two-thirds of the Jews will be killed at this point in the tribulation. One-third will survive it. That's the numbers that are given to us by the Lord. But Satan here, we learn a lot, is the accuser of the brethren. The Apostle Paul even points that out in Romans. And we'll certainly see that as we go through the book of Romans. But he loves nothing more than to bring accusations before God against the people of God. And, as we mentioned, we as the people of God at times have given him good ammunition to be able to do this. This is why we need an advocate. And this is why we need an intercessor. This is why we need Jesus Christ right there at the right hand of God, shutting the mouth of this diabolical agent. And we're able to overcome those allegations, not because of our works. We're able to overcome those allegations because, as the text says, the blood of the Lamb. And I'm convinced that it probably works something like this. Hey, God, we've got a good case against Dave. Look what he did. Look what he thought. Look what he said. We got a good case against him, and I think the Lord Jesus Christ goes, but my blood bought him. So shut your mouth. I think that's kind of how it works with every one of us there in heaven. And the testimony that the believers give, that they were giving in the tribulation, is the testimony that would admit that Jesus was the Savior and Jesus was the Christ. That's what they're believing at this point. Because these people have lived through to this point the rapture of the church three and a half years into the tribulation period, and now they are under the onslaught of a Satan that's been confined to this earth, and their power is found in their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and in his shed blood. And when Satan is cast out of heaven, it's a great moment. He can't make any more allegations. He's done. So it is a great moment of praise. No wonder. And by the way, if our eschatology is accurate, we will be there at this praise service. And we'll be praising God because he no longer can make accusations against any believer. Which brings us to the sixth theme. God will be praised for being in heaven, not on earth. Verse 12 says, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath in heaven, the people will be rejoicing because of what is happening. But woe to those that are on the earth. What a wonderful contrast between people right with God and those who aren't. People right with God are living a life that's positive in eternity. People aren't right with God. Woe to them. They're about to face the satanic onslaught that he's about to give. And the fourth result is Satan's loss to Michael and expulsion from heaven means that he will attempt to destroy and annihilate Israel. We're going to see that, Lord willing, next Sunday night in the next verses when he specifically targets Israel. And that's what we're going to examine next time. Now, this is the moment that we mentioned before when Jesus Christ said concerning Israel, if these days were not shortened, no flesh would be saved. Because Satan and his demons, they cannot be omnipresent, everywhere present. They can't be in those multiple places. They have to be in one place or another. So you've got Satan and those demons confined to this earth, and their goal is to track down people and kill them. Now, hopefully, you're all saved here tonight, and you never need worry about experiencing this or anything about the wrath of God. 
But if you're not saved, you need to clearly understand what this text is saying. The only way to have your accusations eliminated is by the blood of the Lamb. Just think about this. According to Romans, every time a person has failed God, it's gone in the works books. Lists. So if anybody gets before the Lord and they haven't been washed in the blood of the Lamb and they say, well, I'll call up my works. I haven't been a bad person. Let's see how I fare. God says, all right, we'll call them up all right. And every time we've failed the Lord has gone on record on our account. And we will face the wrath of God. Because you see, either the wrath of God goes against us or it goes against the Lord. If the Lord's in our life, he took our place, we never have to worry about experiencing the wrath of God because we have the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the prophetic program that you've revealed. It's pretty clear from this book of Revelation you want us to know this, or you wouldn't have gone to all the trouble to put this in existence in written form. So we thank you for it. I pray that we would have an awareness that we are in many ways on display as we walk through life and as we live our daily lives, we're on display. There's an unseen world that monitors what's going on, Lord, and we don't understand the totality of it. We just know it's there from passages like this. I pray that we would be people who would not give any ammunition to the evil one to be able to fire against us. I pray, Lord, that we would live our lives with a reverent fear and awe of you. I pray we would live our lives in a close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that when it comes our moment to slip into heaven and experience all the joy that's there and the bliss that's there, we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen.